Now it's on. Such a great Sunday to worship together. Um, I'm going to be reading the passage that we are celebrating today, Palm Sunday, um, from the book of Luke. And this is Luke 19, verses 28 through 40. After these words, Jesus walked on ahead of them on his way to Jerusalem. And there, as he was approaching Bethpage and Bethany, near the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent off two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the village just ahead of you, and there you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anybody asks you, why are you untying it? Just say, the Lord needs it. So the messengers went off and found things just as he had told them. In fact, as they were untying the colt, the owners did say, why are you untying it? And they replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks upon it, mounted Jesus on its back. Then, as he rode along, people spread out their coats in the roadway. And as he approached the city, where the road slopes down from the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of his disciples cheerfully shouted praises to God, for all the marvelous things that they had seen him do. God bless the king who comes in the name of the Lord, they cried. There is peace in heaven and glory on high. There were some Pharisees in the crowd who said to Jesus, Master, restrain your disciples. To which he replied, I tell you that if they kept quiet, the very stones in the road would burst out cheering the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. When I add my welcome to that of Mike Stroh, my name's Mike Traven. I'm one of the pastors here also at Trinity Fellowship Church, and I, I want to welcome each of you to our Palm Sunday service this morning. Well, Jesus' entry to Jerusalem to observe the Jewish festival of Passover stands at the beginning of the passion narrative of the Gospels. It's the Sunday for our church calendar, which leads us into Holy Week, as we've heard this morning. And what has been labeled the triumphal entry commemorates one of the few events in the life of Jesus that are recorded in all four of the gospel stories, each adding a layer of detail, perhaps. Well, Jesus, as I said, has entered Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, Whereas, if you're familiar with the story, you know he receives an enthusiastic welcome, as we heard in our scripture read this morning, accompanied with shouts of praise and people waving branches 
some of the accounts tell us. John's gospel mentions that these were palm branches, and so we celebrate Palm Sunday by waving our own palm branches. But palm branches are a a complex symbol in Judaism, linked to both military victories and to messiahship. When Simon Maccabee drove Israel's enemies out of Jerusalem a generation before Jesus' own entrance, the people celebrated this military victory by waving palm branches as a symbol of triumph over their enemies and a reclamation of power and control. During the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the many feasts that Israelites are commanded to observe which foreshadows the actions of the coming Messiah, the waving of palm branches was also a practice. Yet, as I've said, in this instance, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem for the Passover festival, a festival which pictures the sacrifice for forgiveness of sins and the final deliverance of God's people from oppression of their enemies. The circumstances of Jesus' entry produce a variety of reactions among the people that are present in the story as you read the various accounts. There was excitement, as we see here in Luke's account. There was uproar. There was anxiety. As we read in Matthew, he says, the whole city was stirred up. The word he uses there is to be something as shaken as if the result of an earthquake And we know from our scripture passage this morning that there were even those who were angry with Jesus' arrival. Many celebrate his entry as the arrival of Israel's Messiah and the promised Davidic king. But as we've seen, it also sets up a confrontation for Jesus. As we look at verses 39 and 40, where the Pharisees in the crowd say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're offended that people are praising him as the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And what does Jesus say? He says, if if they keep silent, even the very stones will cry out. The very things of creation can recognize the Lord of all creation, the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But you, religious leaders, Jesus says, you you just might be dumb as rocks. It's a confrontation also that plays out not only with the Jewish rulers, but the Roman leadership. A confrontation, rather, which plays out through the remainder of Holy Week, portions of which we're going to observe in our services throughout the week, this week leading up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But this Holy Week culminates in Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. And that's, my friends, what makes his entry into Jerusalem so important for you and me. Beyond the historical and theological complexity of this event, and scholars can bring up a lot of this complexity, Jesus' entry into the city points us toward two major facets of genuine discipleship. One facet for us and for any who follow Jesus looks like the call to following Jesus to our own Jerusalem, 
Jerusalem is the place where we face the worldly systems which can dominate our lives. And the other facet looks like the call to laying down our own lives and taking up our own cross and walking in trust and our hope of the resurrection. Well, those two facets of discipleship, to follow Jesus to our own Jerusalem and have a confrontation with worldly powers, to lay down our own lives and take up our cross, it sounds pretty scary. We tend to operate in a world where we think, well, Jesus did that for me. I just get to realize the benefits of everything that he did. And we lose sight of the fact that Jesus throughout his ministry and and today through his spirit is calling us to do what he did. But it's remarkably good news, friends. Jesus, the Lord of all creation, entered Jerusalem and, and offered his life as the savior of the world. And by his life and death, he's conquered worldly and satanic power through sacrificial love. And he invites those who trust in his victory to give their allegiance to him. And what does that allegiance look like? Jesus says it it looks like doing what I did. Laying down our lives, taking up our cross, loving our enemies. And what makes that perhaps less scary, friends, is that He's promised to be with us in all of our messy reality. The reality that we face in our own individual lives and hearts, the reality that we face in our spheres of influence, our community, our cities, our homes, our country, the world. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And we could also take heart that that Jesus cares more about all of it than you or I could ever possibly care. He cares more about it than you and me, friends. And he's told us through his word that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. The victory has been won. And so as we look this morning at Luke's account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, what I want to ask, have us each ask ourselves, what, what does that teach us about our responsibilities as followers of Christ, in light of these two facets of genuine discipleship, what does it tell us and what should be our manner of life as we live out our calling as followers of Jesus? Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you that you sent your beloved son to us, that in him we have eternal life. And Lord Jesus, we come to you humbly this morning with gratitude for who you are, what you have accomplished for us, and what you are doing in us. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would empower us to see Christ in our midst, to see us rightly in the light of who you are, and and to be transforming into who you have called us to be. Amen. What we see here in the first verse of our passage this morning, it reads, After Jesus had said this, he continued on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. I think it's an important part of the context here in Luke's gospel to understand what Jesus is doing. What is the this that Jesus said? Well, if we look backward to the previous section of scripture, 
As Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem, the expectation is rising. We read in verse 11 that the the kingdom will be decisively brought in. That it will appear at once, the scripture says in verse 11. And so Jesus, knowing that this is people's expectation, that this kingdom is going to appear at once, Jesus uses a parable, as was one of his popular teaching styles, to teach his disciples that the full expression of the kingdom authority will not come until he comes back. And then doing so to explain what he expects of his followers in the interim. Well, as the story is told by Jesus, a nobleman goes to a far country to have himself appointed as king. This nobleman is the king, the rightful king of the country. And as the story proceeds, while gone, the nobleman's interests, the nobleman determines, my interests need to be looked after. They need to be administered to. So he, he calls a group of servants, and he gives each of them a mina. A mina is a not insignificant sum of money. It's the equivalent of about three months' wages. And he gives them this money, and he gives them instructions to, to do business with the money until he returns. Well, in the story here, the nobleman is a picture of Jesus receiving the kingdom, as it were, after his resurrection and ascension. And the servants in this story represent anyone who follows Jesus. Well, as the story goes on, upon returning, the master comes and asks the servants to give an accounting of of how they operated with the resources that he had given them. He rewards those servants who've invested their money in such a way that's benefited the kingdom while he, he punishes a notable servant in the story who didn't operate it with it responsibly. This third servant illustrates the central concern that Jesus wants to raise, that, that having hid his mina in a cloth, this servant has produced nothing. The servant's posture toward What he's been commissioned to do is important to recognize because it shows that although he's associated with the master, although he's associated with the nobleman, there's nothing in anything that he's done to indicate that he truly trusts the master. The parable, friends, it's a a call to faithfulness and a reminder that, that everyone is accountable to Jesus in one way or the other. Those who profess allegiance to him, those who reject him, all will be held accountable. Those who associate with him are responsible for a ministry of service. You may not agree with me, but I think it's possible to make the claim that Christ is your Lord and Savior and yet neither fully know or trust his goodness. I think it's possible to claim he's your Lord and Savior and only get so far in your walk. It's far enough for salvation, but is it what the master expects of us? And how does this manifest in the church today? It manifests as an inward focus, Uh, failing to make Jesus' interests, the interests of the master, the interests of the king, our own interests. 
It's not lost on me. We spend a lot of effort in this church to pull off a Sunday service. A Sunday service that's incredibly important to the life of this body and to our life as disciples. But it's not meant to be the only thing that we do. This service is meant to reconnect us with God, to connect us with one another, and to recharge us to go out into the world and to proclaim the interests of the king. Not simply to create programs and do what makes us feel comfortable. And why is this important context, this part of the story for what follows in Luke's gospel? Because Jesus is is humbly entering Jerusalem, not only as a fulfillment of his mission, but to reclaim and to cleanse the temple so that his followers are completely freed to trust in Christ and to minister and serve, to, to bear true faith and allegiance to his sacrifice and his direction, all in light of his promised return, to be claimed and to be cleansed and to be encouraged to go out and to do the things that Christ has called his church to do. Well, when Jesus arrived at the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, he deliberately set out to enact this 500-year-old prophecy of Zechariah, which was read for us this morning in our call to worship. He's approached the city at the end of a long journey through Galilee, and he tells two of his disciples to go to the next village and to get him a colt that they'll find there a young one that's never been ridden. And yet, history seems fairly sure that around the same time, on an opposite side of the city, the Roman governor Pontius Pilate was making his own grand entrance into Jerusalem. We know from the writings of Josephus that it was Pilate's practice to take up residence in Jerusalem during Jewish festivals as a means of keeping order and suppressing uprisings that may occur. Passover, after all, was a a celebration of freedom from foreign oppression. I can assure you, friends, that, that Pilate made a big deal about his entrance into Jerusalem. And yet Jesus sets out in another way, understanding full well that there's confrontation and an outcome, a horrible outcome that awaits him. Jesus is purposely directing the sequence of events that will ultimately lead to his death. And so as he sets about to make his own entrance, he too is intending to make a statement. But to make his grand entrance, Jesus has chosen a young donkey as the way for people to make sense of his kingship, of his power, of his authority, of his way of being king. Now, the donkey was a symbol of Jewish royalty. In Jewish culture, it was also the animal that that respected Jewish rabbis' road. But as Jesus makes his entrance into Jerusalem, as he makes his way from the Mount of Olives, he's careful to avoid any demonstration of power or force in the traditional sense that we might think of it as, as humans. He enters Jerusalem as the Prince of Peace, 
sitting upon the foal of the donkey. And in defiance of the expectation that Israel's Messiah will be a conquering military leader. I can't help but wonder if some of those who were waving palm branches, as John tells us in his gospel, weren't decidedly confused to see this man coming in a posture of meekness and humility, not on a war horse, as was the messianic expectation, but on a humble donkey. Well, the accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that as he rode along, people spread branches cut from trees. They spread them on the road while others spread their cloaks along the road. And the people who came out to meet Jesus began to rejoice and praise with a loud voice. Well, that Jesus rode into Jerusalem upon an animal that emphasized humility and loneliness, lowliness instead of military strength, that, friends, is what should inform how we celebrate and remember his entry into Jerusalem and how we engage with the culture around us. We call it the triumphal entry. I don't know the origin of that phrase. I tried to find it, but it became a time sink. That's what the heading says in my Bible. But, and if by triumph we mean his victory over sin and death that come about through the crucifixion and resurrection, then, then we get it right. But if we take it to mean a hostile posture to be adopted when we confront the worldly systems in a place in rebellion against its creator, then, then I think we've misunderstood his teaching. Russell Moore notes, he says, we've forgotten that the world is both the object of God's affection and a place in rebellion against its creator. Christian faithfulness involves holding these things in tension. We have granted so many exceptions to the love command that it's almost empty of meaning. We have hoarded God's grace for ourselves while refusing to offer it to others. All of us are shouting about Jesus, but not paying attention to his own words and actions. I think there's a lot of truth to that statement. It's not meant to be an indictment of everything we do or don't do, but I think it's an important reminder that we can get caught up in the wrong things. Well, while Jesus' entry to Jerusalem set up a confrontation with Herod and Caiaphas and Pilate, it wasn't his purpose. He knew it was going to happen, but that wasn't the purpose for which he went to Jerusalem. He went to celebrate the Passover, yes, but he wasn't marching on the capital to incite a violent uprising. But the scriptures tell us that it was to assert his authority over the temple of God and to cleanse it in preparation. Look at verses 45 through 48. It says, then Jesus entered the temple courts and began to drive out those who were selling things there, saying to them, It is written, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. Jesus was teaching daily in the temple courts. The chief priests and the experts in the law and the prominent leaders among the people were seeking to assassinate him. But they could not find a way to do it 
for all the people hung on his words. There's various accounts of Jesus cleansing the temple. The various gospel writers, in some ways, get the chronology a bit different. In one writing, we see Jesus fashioning a whip out of cords and and driving the animals out of the temple and turning over tables and driving out money changers. It's difficult to really understand what Jesus' heart was in that moment, perhaps. Was it anger? Was it frustration? Was he whipping people? Was he violent? But I think if we know the heart of God and and the perfection of Christ, I think we are careful to ascribe such human emotions to him in that sense. You see, a great gap had emerged between the worship that Jesus calls for and what was going on in this temple. The temple, rather than being the meeting place between God and his people, had become an excessively commercial enterprise. This is what Jesus' issue was. It wasn't as much a place of worship and prayer as it was a place of, of people trading and making money in the guise of religious worship. Well, in a modern corollary, has the temple of our human hearts as New Testament believers has, it, has this temple become an excessively self-focused enterprise, focused on power and influence that, that we can achieve as individuals or as, a, as the church, rather than a place of, of humility and service that promotes peace and fights for justice and cares for the poor? More and more people today we see, it's been referenced a number of times from this pulpit about this Barna study where people say, I, I love Jesus. I don't have a problem with Jesus. I have a problem with his church. And we can let that rub us the wrong way and be offended and defensive about it, but I think we have to honor the fact that there's some truth to that. That more and more people today say they love Jesus and believe in his message of forgiveness and love, and yet... They see a church that's so focused on preserving itself that it fails to live up to the teachings of Jesus. Are we any different, friends? I'm not saying that that what we do here is bad. But I'm asking us to honestly ask ourselves, is is it the fullness of what Jesus is calling us to do and to be? Is he going to come back and look at you and me and us as a body and say, well done? Or is he going to say, you didn't do as much as I wanted you to do. I still love you. You're still my children. But I trusted you with something great. A lot of people today justify their actions in, with great intentions of engaging with the culture by looking at what Jesus did in clearing the temple and turning over tables and driving out sinful people. And they use that as their justification to behave in a, in a hostile way toward the people that they perceive 
to be God's enemies. And many of those people are God's enemies. But Jesus didn't tell us to go out and fight our enemies and win the battle for Jesus because the battle's already been won, friends. He told us to go out and to love our enemies and to care for the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted and the downtrodden, not to make a name for ourselves, but to proclaim the name of Jesus. Jesus' clearing of the temple understood in the context of, of Luke and Acts. This incident was, was preparing the temple for its role as the starting point of a new movement away from Jerusalem as witness to all people. And you, friends, you and I are the beneficiaries of that temple cleansing. You and I are the beneficiaries of that death on the cross that cleansed the temple of our human heart and frees us to minister to love without fear. We are the temple of God. Our hearts are the center of his worship. And we gather in this sanctuary, this earthly temple, to come together to be renewed and recharged and to be encouraged and to go out and to do those things. And we, as individuals and collectively as the body of Christ, we can be called the temple of God only because we are in Christ. Not because of anything that we've done. Not because of how smart we are with our programs, how refined our apologetic arguments are but because we are in Christ and we do it in his humility and in his meekness, his power. We've been made pure through Christ's sacrificial death and God dwells in us through the presence of his spirit. His claiming and cleansing of the temple is emblematic of the claim he has on us as vessels through whom God's presence on earth is mediated. God's very presence on earth manifests as self-sacrifice, self-giving, loving his enemies, loving us while we were yet still his enemies, even to the point of his own death. Our bodies, our minds, our hearts, and our souls belong to Christ because he entered Jerusalem, because he went to the cross, because he faced this confrontation. And he's cleansed us of all unrighteousness so that we may go forth as his witnesses. And he shared all of his authority, all of his blessing, and his birthright with us the mina that God has entrusted to us, friends, is his authority, his blessing, his birthright. And his true power is displayed through self-giving love. Well, as we look at Jesus' posture of humility and meekness, as he entered Jerusalem at the beginning of Holy Week, how are we to be transformed? Dr. Esau Macaulay, he's a New Testament professor at Wheaton College. He's a theologian. He's a, a black theologian. He's a tremendous voice 
in the modern theological conversation, and I don't mean modern in any negative sense. He says if we, he recently wrote an article about Palm Sunday and Christianity Today that I, I thought was thought-provoking, but he says if we strive to establish God's rule through self-assertion over neighborly care, through pragmatism over principle, and malice over love, then whatever else we accomplish, we are no longer following in the way of Jesus. God chose meekness, integrity, and love to gather his people. That is the message of Palm Sunday. For all the shouts of acclamation, for all the waving of branches, for all of the spreading of cloaks on the road, Jesus never lost sight of the cross. Well, this is, as I've thought about an application, and I I haven't fully developed this thought, but it, it keeps sticking with me that I I believe that it has to start. I, I'm not advocating that, that the church just be silent and not engaged and meek and we're just nice people. But I don't think we responsibly know how to wield the authority that Jesus has given us. I think we're still babies in that. So I think it has to start with laying everything down at the feet of Jesus. I think that's where it starts. Our desire for significance and power and influence over our culture, our our desire to vanquish the enemies of the church, the enemies of our culture, the enemies of our values. I think we have to start by laying it all down because until we've let go of our own self-confidence about what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus, All of our self-confidence about how to establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven will be simply enacting our own agenda and not Christ's. We, I don't think we know what to pick up and how to use it until we've learned to live without it. Until we've learned to be comfortable in our weakness and our meekness and to trust Jesus as the one true power, the one person who truly changes things, to allow ourselves to be the instruments in his hands. Until we learn that lesson, friends, we cannot pick up anything other than our cross. We're going to have a time of corporate prayer later this morning, and I would invite each of us to start by by asking God to reveal to us the things in our hearts that we need to lay down? What are the things that cause you to get worked up about the church in America? What are the things that have you worked up about this church? What are the things that make you angry? And lay them down at the feet of Jesus. I think it's got to start there individually. And I think we need to start asking ourselves corporately, God has been faithful to preserve this church for 47 or 48 years. We've been through a lot. We survived the last two years of COVID. Where are we going to move together next? And later as we partake of the Lord's table, let let the act of, of laying down your palm branch, down before the altar, let that be the first bodily expression 
of this first step of trusting Christ with all of our desires, that, that we would be transformed out of the center of his love. Would you pray with me? Almighty and everlasting God, in your tender love for us, you sent your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to take upon himself our nature, giving us the example of his great humility and to suffer death upon the cross. Father, I, we pray that you would mercifully grant that, that we, with, with courage and conviction, would invite Jesus into every aspect of our inner lives and continue to journey faithfully and resolutely toward our own Jerusalems. Give us both the wisdom and the resolve to face death and embrace the resurrection as the path to a life that is full of abundance and rest. And lead us to laying down the palm branches of our own self-interest that, that we may more fully know the real Jesus who hung on the cross and came out of the tomb and who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever forever.